Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. I'm your host, Marcus Gillis, and we're recording live from Santa Fe, New Mexico. Yep, the interview and the wrap-up were recorded at our studio in Banjo, but today I'm recording in a coat closet in a hotel. Welcome to episode 12 of the Live from Banjo podcast. Happy spring, everybody. Hope we can all enjoy the outdoors safely in the near future. For those of you that are new to the show, welcome, and for those that are returning, thank you. Please remember to follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're on Apple, please leave a review if you enjoyed the show. If you have critiques, feel free to DM me at Live from Banjo Podcast on Instagram or email me directly at Marcus at LiveFromBanjo.com. I have started a Patreon page to try and help cover the cost of producing the show. It can be accessed through the link in the bio of my Facebook page at Marcus Gillis or the Live from Banjo Podcast Instagram page. I have had to temporarily suspend the Patreon page due to technical difficulties. However, expect it back up in the next couple of days, today being March 23rd of 2021. In the link in my bios, you can also now stream all episodes. I have created a guest introduction page to connect you directly to our guest websites. You can connect directly to the Live from Banjo website, and I've included a link to the Live from Banjo guest mixtape playlist on Spotify. Please let me know what kind of additional content you would be interested in seeing over at Patreon in the future. Today is part one of a two-part episode, which is a first for the Live from Banjo podcast. My guest today is Paul DeFiglia. Paul is a record producer and multi-instrumentalist currently located in Nashville, Tennessee. Paul was the original bass player for Langhorn Slim's band, who commonly appeared as Langhorn Slim in the War Eagles from 2004 to almost 2009. The original lineup included Langhorn, Paul, and Slim's current drummer, Malachi De Lorenzo. Paul left the band in 2008 after traveling around the nation and the world with Langhorn and Malachi. After a brief break from music, Paul started playing again, and shortly after was asked to sub for the Avery Brothers bassist Bob Crawford while his wife gave birth to his son. After a few months, Paul was asked to sub again as Bob's daughter was diagnosed with a brain tumor, and Bob was going to miss a significant number of shows over the next year while Bob's daughter Hallie received treatment. Paul subbed as needed over the next year or so, and when Bob returned, Paul transitioned to the Keys, where he continued to learn and hone his skills as he traveled with the band. Paul toured with the Avids for roughly six years and recorded True Sadness, produced by Rick Rubin, while with the band. In 2017, Paul decided he was no longer being fulfilled as a Keys player and decided to quit the band and head back to Nashville. Paul returned to his home in Nashville and began improvements on his analog and digital recording studio, which is now named Daylight, and we discuss in great detail during the episode. In 2020 and 2021, Paul played bass and co-produced Langhorn Slim's newest album, Strawberry Mansion, and also sang, played bass, keys, produced, mixed, and released his own solo album titled In Daylight, which includes performances from Scott and Seth Avid of the Avid Brothers, Aaron Ray, Matt Davidson of Twain, Malachi De Lorenzo, and more. Paul was kind enough to allow me to use some clips of songs off his new album that are discussed and referenced in the interview. Please let me know if you enjoyed this and would like to see more of this interactive format in the future. Thank you so much for everyone that is listening. Please tell your friends, family, and complete strangers about the show. And again, please follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you would like to be a sponsor, please contact me at livefrombanjo.com, email me at marcus at livefrombanjo.com, 
or DM and everybody else, please follow me on Instagram at Live from Banjo Podcast. It really helps me spread the word. Please stick around after the interview for Crystal and I's wrap up where we discuss the butthole surfers, the enhanced fajita scale, and what some people will do as a result of being held down by the lizard people. I hope you all listen and enjoy the first half of my conversation with this incredibly talented person and like-minded brother, Mr. Paul DeFiglia. musicians tend to run a little bit late just a few minutes oh yes yeah i mean i i kind of used to be that guy so that's why but like i'm constantly like making my penance to the former you know like i'm trying to make it up make up for lost time and my but the other thing is my wife is a serial late comer person and it drives me up a wall that is kind of shocking because she works on a television show and I was going to say I started out in film production back in the mid 2000s until late 2000s. And one of the main things was you had to be early because when your time started, yeah, that meant everything was ready to go. That wasn't the starting time. That was go time. So I just got so used to half an hour at least being ready to start a job just so that I could sit around and relax and yeah, I'm sure when she's on a shoot, she's on point. Right. But like when it's time to meet our friends, you know, it's just like, come on, you know, I feel terrible. Can you hear my vocal and everything okay? Yeah, yeah, you're sounding good. Okay, cool. Um, They're doing like construction over here. This is like the quietest place I, I got. As you can see, there's like plastic up and stuff. Is that it? Is that daylight right there? Or? Yeah, 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 this is it. So I'm, I'm getting a bathroom because there's no bathroom back here right. and I'm getting like an extra kind of ISO room. So they're doing siding. So if it gets to be distracting or too loud, we can try and like figure something else out. But hopefully it's- you know what? It, it really doesn't matter with different people's internet and Wi-Fi being so poor. Like some people can have the best quality mics, but their internet's garbage and the sound just comes in like trash. And then some people have like, they're just working straight off their laptop and they're, they're sound clear. So it's kind of a mix mash. Yeah. Well, you, you look like you have a nice little setup going on. Yeah. It's my, it's my office here. And then I, I kind of move it around. I get this like roll cart kind of deal with my, my mixing board to the side and then computer and editing station over there. And it's not bad. Cool. Yeah. My wife and I do like the little post show wrap up here and, her mic is pulls out over here. Yeah. I live in a very small home because housing here is ridiculous. Mm, yeah. That's what I've heard. How, how long have you been in Nashville? I've been here for seven years, almost seven, I think seven years exactly like in January. So 2014. So Nashville had a pretty rough year last year with the tornado and everything. How close is that to where you're at? Pretty close. It woke us up. Yeah. The, uh, well, I thought you were talking, sorry, I'm getting all my like tragedies confused. Oh, you were talking about the, I was talking about the suicide bomber. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. The suicide. Thank you for calling it the suicide bomber because I kept calling it a suicide bomber and everybody's like the victim or whatever that, you know, lost his life. And I'm like, yeah, 
You mean, come on, you mean the terrorist suicide bomber? (laughs) That's like, it doesn't get any more textbook than that. He blew himself up. He's a suicide bomber. Um, No, the, the tornado is the tragedy that we slept through. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. We woke up like when we normally wake up and then our phones had just like, we're just going off the hook. Are you okay? And that was what was kind of scary about that too, because it kind of like went around it kind of went in this like seemingly straight line and then around our neighborhood and then continued on devastating the rest of East Nashville. It's, it's, it's pretty crazy. Just because I was interviewing somebody one time, I looked at like a Google earth because you could literally look over through Nashville and kind of see the, the destruction. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. It was, it was terrifying. It seems like the whole thing is a blur because COVID kind of was like a week after mm-hmm. or, you know, things got kind of locked down here. So that sort of just took up a whole nother mental space. And then the bomber. And then the bomber and all the stuff with the election. And it's been crazy. Yeah. Our uh, neighbor picked up this guy like prowling around our yards with like an assault rifle. What? Yeah. That was like two days after Christmas, like after that bombing. Yeah. He just picked up this dude on his security camera, like GI Joe. Oh, you know, and that freaked us out. I'm sure. Yeah. COVID everything. I mean, yeah. It's, so are you no. pretty close to downtown then? If you said that the, you heard the bombing. Yeah. We're probably as the crow flies, we're probably like a mile and a half okay. or something. Yeah. We're across the river, but we're basically just on the right on the other side. Okay. Yeah. Well, fun. So you had actually started to record or had the idea for recording your new full length or your first, I guess, solo full length album, Daylight, mm-hmm. named named after your recording studio or? In Daylight. In Daylight. In Daylight. Oh, I'm <laughs> fucked it up already. All right. Well, shit. So In Daylight, what is the connection with Daylight and In Daylight and where that all comes from? I used to call the studio uh, sensitive sound because mm-hmm. I've, I've always been sort of made fun of by friends for being like an overly kind of sensitive person. And that's sort of like this on this ongoing kind of joke for a long time. And, and then I even made these like mixtapes back in the day and I called it like sensitive man. So mm. all my buddies were like, you should call it sensitive something. So, but it never really kind of, it just didn't really jive that well. And and one of the cool features, you can't really tell because the lights are on, but uh, my father-in-law put in some skylights a few years ago. So as I'm sure you're probably aware, like a lot of studios are kind of like these dark cavernous spaces yeah. and they're designed to be that way, you know, for reasons. But, and I was, that's kind of how this place used to be. It's a detached converted garage. So, you know, for the first five years of it it was a dark you know cavernous place but yeah the skylights went in and i decided that i wanted to kind of highlight that to set myself apart a little bit from other studios and um and then i and i just happened to be coming back here one day and like humming this song called daylight by this band ramp it's like an old um kind of funk record great record uh roy Ayers produced and uh it's got this course like wanna see daylight, daylight. And I just like happened to be kind of like vibing around my place a little bit, singing that song. And I was like, Oh yeah, that's what she, 
it's easy to remember. It's descriptive. I like the actual, just the sound of the word, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so, yeah, the studio really kind of did the first major renovation kind of to get serious about it was like when I, right after I left the Avid brothers and I kind of came back here one day, like, what am I going to do now? You know, and I had always been recording stuff back here, but I just started like moving stuff around. And when we bought the place, it was just a detached garage, you know, for cars and it didn't even have insulation at all, like nothing. So, okay, you know, over the first year I, I put pink insulation up and then like this kind of sheathing cardboard stuff. And then that day after, basically I came back here after leaving the Avits. I started framing out a new wall over that to draw. And I didn't really know what I was doing, but I was just like, all right, let me like try and get it more soundproof. Yeah. And then it just ended up happening. I just framed out a, a completely new wall around the inside and then drywalled it, opened up the ceiling, put the skylights in. And, and then I just started using it a lot more. And then since then I built this control room out. So there's like another wall here, but I don't know. It's funny. I went to New York, like, the first week of March last last year. And it was for this, um, to shoot a video for this audition for a State Department gig that my friends kind of have some something to do with where you basically do these like kind of diplomatic, kind of USO sort of style things with a, you audition as a band and then if you get it, they send you to like Eastern Europe and you do like two weeks and they're like workshops and you play every night and it's like good money. And so we were putting videos together for that and we didn't get it, but um, I went to New York anyway. And it was like right when shit was starting to get scary. And I was like, mm. why am I in New York right now? But I was just on that trip that I started sort of thinking in my mind, like, you know, it'd be a really cool way to promote the studio, promote myself as a multi-instrumentalist, you know, whatever. And, and as a producer, and kind of do all these things in one package, it would make a lot of sense to make a solo record, even though like being kind of like putting myself out there as like an artist, if you will, like has never really appealed to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I just sort of started kind of think, all right, well, I could do like an album of basically inter covers, like interpretations of tunes that I like. So I just started kind of on my phone, like on a city bus, like putting together a, a master, like a huge list of songs that I would love to cover, you know? Mm. How long did that list? <laughs> it was long. I mean, it's, be. it's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, and it was like, you know, every era, every genre. It was just like, you know, cool songs. But also I kind of wanted to keep them like songs that are a little off the beaten path. You know, I didn't want to be doing like whatever, like uh, songs off a thriller or something. I was like, I want to kind of be like putting something new in terms of the song selection in people's ears as well. Yeah. So, yeah, I recognized a few of the tunes as I was listening through it. It was funny. The first time I listened to the album, I did not know it was all covers. Mm -hmm. And I listened to the first tune and I was like, God, this, this really, this really sounds like Beck. <gasps> you know, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's kind of cool. And then I was going through and then I was like, This is a cover. This is Nat King Cole. And then, oh, 
this is Nick Drake. And then I, I went back and I was like, oh, they're all covered. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think part of me also had this kind of like uh, self-consciousness about that because I'm not like a songwriter mm-hmm. really, you know, at all, really. I mean, I've done like some co-writing things with people, but it's more on the production side. It's not like, what's our song going to be about? I really kind of, a, I'm more about putting the music part of it together, you know? And like, I don't know, in Nashville is such a songwriter's town. I was like, what am I doing? You know? not just going to like try and write anyway. So, you know, and I'm a big record collector too. So I started going back through some records and I was like, you know, back in the day, like people had whole albums of hits from the, from the, you know, the current hits of the, of the era. It was like yeah. a common thing, you know, like Beatles, you know, like there's that Booker T and the MGs record. It's like all basic, all Beatles songs. And like, yeah, these were like hits, you know? Yeah. So that kind of like after after a while looking at that, I was like, you know, why don't people do that anymore? It's 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 all about nowadays. There's almost an expectation that it's all original music. I read that you had some punk rock roots, but I grew up. I'm just I think I'm just a tail older than you. I'm 41. I think you're what, like 38, 37, okay, 37. 37. And uh, when I was in high school, um, me first in the gimme gimme's started playing together yeah, and that's all they did. And I loved going to see those guys. I mean, it was all, a lot of my favorite bands anyway, too, with Fat Mike and Joey Cape and, you know, some of those guys, but I grew up listening to all that classic music and like so many albums and I'm kind of a, a music nerd, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm not a good enough music nerd, but, uh, I, I listen to so much stuff and I have my whole life. Like my genres have been all over the place, you know, from classical to jazz to punk rock. Even when I was a punk rock kid, my friends made fun of me because I listened, you know, to all these other <laughs> genres that weren't punk rock because at the time, like you just had to listen to punk rock. And I felt like I had to hide yeah. in my room to listen to all the other music that yeah. I like. But, you know, me first in the gimme gimme's you know, it was all covers and I loved those albums. And even on all the other punk bands at the time, there was almost always at least one cover song of like some classic on each album back in the day. Yeah. And I, I mean, there's so, there's so many, like, can't think of a good, a good example right now, but like, yeah, songs like that, that you listen to growing up that, Oh, I know a good one. The first one, you remember the Simpsons album that came out? There was like a Simpsons yes. record. Mm-hmm. I do. That came out. Yeah. 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 And um, there was a song on there called Springfield Soul Stew that was Memphis Soul Stew. But, you know, it's the same kind of idea where they're like, give me a little, you know, we're making some stew. Like, let's add some drums, you know, let's add a little bass, like spice it up with some horns. I went through my life like into my 20s thinking that was just like a Simpsons song or something, you know, until I realized it wasn't. So all along the Watchtower until I was like probably... 14 never in my life did I question that that was a Jimi Hendrix song and that was you know that it was Dylan I I didn't know that until I started getting into Dylan and then I was like wait a second this is a Dylan song this is a Dylan song this is a Dylan song and then you start noticing Mm -hmm. that everybody did Dylan totally and the thing that the thing about it is like when you discover that it's a Dylan song, it doesn't ruin the Jimi Hendrix version. It only enhances it because then you're like, wait, this sounds nothing like the original. Like right. it gives you all, all new, like a renewed appreciation yeah. for like what 
the vision of it was that covered the song. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's funny because the first two that went on the record ended up being Beck songs, you know, and before I knew that I wanted to make a record, I just sort of would like, I had all this free time because, you know, lockdown and I was making a lot of beats and stuff. And, you know, I was like, I don't know what to do with them. So I'm just kind of like, put, like stowing them all away. And then, and then I was like, all right, let me start trying to tackle some of these cover songs that I had made this list for. And the first two happened to be Beck songs, like early Beck songs. And, and then I was like, well, what am I doing? Like making a Beck cover record? Like, you know, what am I, they just happened to be. So I was, it, my initial plan was to ditch one of them, but I ended up kind of becoming attached to both of them. They're both really good. Thank you. Thanks. The second one is a, the version never came out on a record. It ended up coming out on the deluxe version of One Foot in the Grave, I think. Woe, woe unto me. But I originally had it with Malachi, the drummer from um, Langhorn Slim. He used to be a part of these things back in the day, like before, right before like Napster and stuff where, you know, there's a lot of people that would mail back and forth um, bootlegs and stuff. Mm -hmm. So Mal had all these bootlegs that we used to listen to in the van on tour all the time. And one of them was this Beck radio show from Morning Becomes Eclectic. It was actually two radio shows, the first one and the second one. And the first one, he's like this young punk. They're doing Loser and all this stuff. And he's just like kind of really funny and goofy. And then the second one, he comes back and he's actually got like real, so like those are real songs, but he's got like some songs that are like a little bit more serious. And he does that song. You know, I always thought it was called Strain of Sorrow. So that was just like this deep cut that I thought I was being really like clever with pulling out. And then I realized that he had put up another version, like a major version of it later on uh, One Foot in the Grave oh, Deluxe. Gotcha. Yeah. With Beck, it was so different when like Loser came out, you know, I was in middle school, I think it was eighth grade or something when Loser got big. But the thing about Beck was, was he was, he was just kind of this cool, goofy, it wasn't punk, but it was something different than what else was out there. And a lot of us like skater kids were into punk and into hip hop. And it kind of, it kind of fused that, at least that feeling or that emotion. And then I remember seeing a documentary back in the day. I can't remember what it was, but the lead singer, of the butthole surfers comes on and he goes, you know, you know, the new, the new punk, I hope it's Beck. And, and this was at least when it was recorded. I can't remember when the doc came out, but I was like, wow, they were kind of on to the fact that he was kind of a musical genius. And it just, you saw it more and more every time. And then like the sea change came out and then you're like, what? Every time he came out with a new album, it was just like, oh my God, this guy is deep. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. The, uh, the morning becomes eclectic. The first one, they promote the show he's playing that night. And I think he's like, playing with this band Kill Whitey and like a, another kind of punk band. And then the second show that he's on, he's opening, they're like, come out tonight. He's opening for Johnny Cash. <laughs> so it's like between then and, you know, it's just like this. huge. But yeah, as an artist, like he's somebody I have like a ton of respect for because he's, yeah, he's done so much genre wise. You know, his music is like, it's funny. It's serious. It's super, produced and arranged it's super stripped down there's like so much to to love you know and his uh his wordplay is is awesome like his lyrics are amazing daylight your studio is it it's analog or is it a mix kind of deal or what 
Yeah, I have a Pro Tools rig. It's a basically a 16-channel analog and digital studio. So I have a full like Pro Tools rig, and uh, and then I have a 24-track, two-inch tape machine also. Is that coming back more now, or is that still pretty rare with the analog? It depends. Okay. There's definitely a renewed interest in analog recording and tape recording, mm-hmm. but it's hard. It's still hard to do, you know, it's a physical format that requires a lot of attention, you know, from alignment and like setup to repairs and all that stuff. So not only do I love analog recording and stuff, but it's also another way to, to be able to kind of set myself apart a little bit and offer, offer someone both. We could do both. We could do each one or we could do kind of like a hybrid. Like there's a lot of different options. And yeah, I definitely prefer being on tape. I think it's a little bit more of an intentional, the process of it for me is a lot more interesting to commit to things early on and make decisions and not kind of end up doing all this like kind of grunt work at the end or whatever. Yeah. When I was working in LA, I was a DP and a camera operator And I was at that transition from shooting on film and HD. And it was kind of like a, it was kind of the same way for me as I would have picked shooting on film a hundred percent of the time for that same reason. You're very particular about what you're going to do. You know, it takes a little more pre-planning. It takes a little more, you know, in depth, you're reading everything off a light meter. There's a little more just like, shit can happen element to it. I don't know. I liked that part about it, but that it's that once you do it, this is, this is what it is. So you got to be sure about it rather than just let's throw everything at the wall. And then later on, we'll figure out if we have something. And I, I think the majority of the time you're going to end up with a better product with the with less. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of good arguments to be made in, in either camp about quality and sound quality and stuff like that but i think each person is kind of has to ask themselves like how figure out how best they work and how they like to work and there's some people that are super intuitive and committing to things and have this vision in the digital world and that works for them and and there's others that working on tape may be easier for them and and so it's just it's taken me a long time to sort of get there myself to realize that it's easier for my mind to kind of process things in real time on tape than that, than it is necessarily pro tools. Hmm. I heard a couple of inspirations that in my mind, just from my musical knowledge, but could be completely off from your own uh, sensibilities. But I just, I had to know, this is just uh, me being selfish and, and wanting to know if I've got any of these, were you ever into like, Mr. Bungle and California, that album, do you ever know? Okay. Not really. You know who, I mean, I, I listened to it and I had a lot of friends that listened to it. But no, I never got really into it myself. You know who's a huge Mr. Bungle fan is Scott Avitt. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they're nuts. I mean, it's one album to the next. You don't know what you're going to get. But 
that yeah. California album that came out when I was in college and I was just like, I listened to it a million times. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely listened to it, but I, I never got like super into it. So strike one, strike one. We're going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to go with the second one, which I think is going to be a strike two. Um, but it, it's kind of off mm-hmm. the cuff. Give her here. It was an indie rock band out of LA called radar brothers, Mount Wilson repeater. No, no. And then, uh, Ben Folds Five was the last one that I heard a little. Bit. Not yep. really, although we are from the same town. Okay, maybe that's it. It was in your voice actually that I was thinking of that. In one of yeah, one of the albums or one of the songs. You're not the first person who's told me that though. I've had a lot of people say that about this for whatever reason. You didn't see my Valentine. Sent it via pantomime While you were watching someone else Stared at you and cut myself I respect the shit out of him. Um, he's an awesome musician. Definitely, like, uh, a lot of pride in, in that we're both from the same town and stuff. But um, I just never really listened to him that much. Yeah, I didn't. I wasn't a big Ben Folds Five person or Radar Brothers either. I just actually had like a brief spell where I was trying to be like a music coordinator for film out in L.A. So I was like going out trying to find new music that we could then go get the bands and get the music like included on the films. And while I was working on this one film, Jim Putnam, that was with the Radar Brothers, had put out this little side project that he still does, I think called Mount Wilson repeater. And I wanted to use one song off of that. So I went and saw him at, I don't know, what was that? The glitter factory or something out there in LA. I, I heard something else and I was like, Oh, that kind of reminds me of, of this uh, old radar brother song that I heard back in the day. so many good artists a lot of these people that you had worked with aaron ray ava brothers matt davidson adam mcbride mm-hmm. and malachi de lorenzo who obviously was with or is you know still works with um slim other than this last album but aaron ray this is why i say i i feel like i'm kind of a music nerd and then i'm asleep on people i i didn't find out about aaron ray until brian elmquist put out his joy club and had her on there, and then I was like, who is this? And so I went out and found her album, found out she's amazing. strawberry mansion and matt davidson and then i like i don't know how i slept on twain but it turns out that don't sleep on twain there was a boy and 
I've been I've been on a rabbit hole of just like listening to yeah because there's there's a lot you know it's actually it's kind of nice to get a new band that you're just like oh and they have multiple albums I can just listen for hours at a time yeah yeah man he is he is the guy I mean like that band is some of my favorite stuff coming out now and the fact that I get to work with him and see him like as often as I do is just like such a, uh, I mean, I'm like a geek for his music. Yeah. And when he's here working, I'm just like, I mean, I get, I get like so excited when he just starts noodling around on an instrument. I'm just like, Oh my God. It's, Cause he can just pretty much pick up anything. It's magical. Yeah, man. He plays like, yeah, he can play like everything. And not only like that, not only that, but he can convey like magic with it. You know, it's not only that he can like play the thing, you you can almost instantaneously like know you can hear him you know i don't know how to describe it but um i've heard that actually i think i've read that somewhere else where somebody is like you know when he picks up an instrument it's one of those things where you actually like hear his spirit coming through like you can hear the difference when he picks it up yeah and he's also like really adventurous in the studio which is something that generally i think is uh you don't see a whole lot of at least in my experience, you know, people tend to kind of like get kind of conservative in the studio when you put a mic in front of them and all right, now play. It's like, you know, people kind of, he's just one of these people who uses it, who flips that whole paradigm and makes it like, all right, now this is an opportunity to try something. You know, he does that when he's not, you know, at live shows too. Like he gets really adventurous but especially in the studio it's just it's really cool to see because especially with the strawberry mansion record i mean there's just things on that record that are just him and his like spark of an idea that you know we just happen to pick up in the moment that uh fundamentally transformed those songs right in my opinion yes yeah. it was it's very cool i'm i'm happy to have found him i'm glad that he was on that album <laughs> Because I I don't know how long more I would have slept on Twain, and now now whenever live music comes back to the world, <laughs> I can come see it. Yeah. So I'm actually making a record. We are making a record with Aaron Ray and Matt and me. Oh. And uh, yeah, it's gonna be. It sounds so good. It's really good, and it's all other people's um, songs. We haven't done any of their original tunes yet. But I think that was the idea is to have it be a kind of covers record. And um, they sing so well together. And that has been such an awesome vibe. And we've just been able to do it like kind of whenever Matt is like on his way, you know, crisscrossing the country or whatever. We can get like a few days in here and there. But we've done so far like a Judy Sill song. Just some we have did a Big Kitty song. Do you know Big Kitty? I don't know. Big kid. Well, it sounds familiar, but then there's a lot that, you know, then I'm just going, is that because of Rainbow Kitten Surprise or something like that? that I'm yeah, thinking, what, yeah. is, what is Big Kitty? It is he's just this songwriter uh, kind of. What's the style? It's kind of like, I don't know. I get weird typecasting people. It's sort of like indie folk kind of thing. That's all I'll say. Okay, sure. 
yeah. there's a lot of indie folk. Yeah, I mean that's vague enough, yeah, right? It's perfect. <laughs> I don't know the gazillion <laughs> genres that could fall into indie folk. Uh, oh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. Like this whole Americana genre, I'm just like, it's folk music, man. You know, it's folk rock. Like, you know, it's kind of like that thing of like when college rock started to get called indie rock, you know, yeah. and then it's like alternative at what point that transitioned. And then where, where did that line draw with punk? And like, it's, and now it's all in one and you've got yeah. some bluegrass and country in there too. And well, to me, it's like all that stuff was, was top down from the industry, like radio oh, and, yeah. and lab- it was- labels. It's like, who is describing like, Oh, it sounds kind of indie. It's like, well, I mean, I actually do describe things that way. Yeah, in now. But it's almost because it's like there's no budget, you know, things sound indie because there's not like a super polished, you know, thousand dollars of, you know, budget coming into the music. I just love that raw sound, though. Yeah, I really do. I still there's something about it. Like in Langhorn's last couple of albums have had that just kind of like it feels, I don't know, something yeah. tangible that I like. Yeah. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes I like bands to go and try whatever the fuck they want to do. So like, like the Ava brothers, like they'll go from doing something that's, you know, really polished to then something that's real, a lot more stripped down on the same album. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay with them trying it because, you know, it's all, it's all good. <laughs> you know, it's just yeah. whatever you want to put out. And then I th- it's so amazing too, to go like listen to a band and hear an album and then the different ways that, you know, some bands tour an album forever before they go into the studio. And so you get that album and then it's kind of this polished version. And then other bands, it's like, okay, we need to make new music, go make the new music. And then they tour it. And the mm-hmm. music that you hear it, compared to the album is so incredible, but that, you know, it's had that time to like marinate and, you know, mm-hmm. get the little nuances and just get in there. And then all of a sudden it becomes this magic and you listen to the album and you're like, it makes the records sound better because of the feeling that you can get from that moment when you actually heard the song live. Yeah. I've, I've been in both sides of those, uh, of that camp. Like I used to be of the mind that it was, it was better to kind of be super rehearsed and everything and play those songs out on the road as much as you can. And then when you get into the studio, you'll have it all locked down. And like, I don't know, lately I've totally done a 180 from that. And I'm like, I've really embraced that, like not, ever you know having heard the song before you go in to record it try not to have any preconceived ideas about it and just go in there that day that moment what are you what are you feeling and and record it you know yeah now you said that you where your hometown was it's when you said that are you talking about is that winston salem that you're speaking of when that ben folds was from yeah that's what i'm claiming i i actually kind of claim winston salem and greensboro because i kind of my parents, my dad used to be in Greensboro and I went to high school and some middle school in Greensboro and then Winston-Salem, my mom was living there and my aunt was there, but um, I went to high school there as well and like elementary school. But yeah, Winston-Salem, I'm going to, I'm going to take credit. Were you born in North Carolina then? I'm guessing. I was born in Greensboro, North okay. Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. See, I was born in Camarillo, California and I moved to... Uh, just north of Atlanta when I was seven. And I, I claim to be from Lawrenceville, Georgia. I don't 
<laughs> you know, that was, I yeah. mean, I lived in Georgia until, you know, my college years, you know, and then I graduated and eventually moved away. And now I've been gone for, you know, the last 15 or 16 years, but I, that was where I grew up. That's where I'm from. I wasn't from California that, you know, or that little yeah. town in California that I lived for two years before we moved away or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's like at a certain age, I used to get really consumed with that question. And me too, (laughs) especially when I lived in New York, like be like telling people where I was from really meant a lot to me to be able to say like, this is it, you know, but it really, after a while, it's just like, what feels right in your heart, you know, and what's like the easiest thing to say? Cause I I hate getting in this long winded, you know, sometimes it's just like, dude, I'm from, you know, whatever. I moved around a lot, you know? Cause I also claim New York. Like I lived in New York for 12 years and I'm clump taking that shit too. Like I'm a New Yorker, you know, I'm going to say that you know, all day. Yeah. I've been in Colorado now for mm, like 12, 13 years. I mean, now I'm, I'm a Colorado I guess, except I have a hard time saying it with the, like yeah. the muddled accent of me, but you are a huge Cubs fan. How did that come about? My dad's side of the family is from Chicago. So I grew up in growing up in North Carolina, you know, we didn't have a baseball team or a football team or anything. And my dad and his family are like diehard Cubs fans. My grandfather was a die. My grandparents were diehard Cubs fans and bears fans and um, bulls. And now my dad is in, my dad is like really into the Blackhawks now. And growing up, he never, we never watched hockey, but. We also got WGN in North Carolina. So that Mm. was, we could watch all the games, you know, in Georgia, we got WGN as well. And I was the biggest bulls fan in the world, even though I was in, I was in, you know, Georgia, I didn't get, I didn't care about the Hawks. You know, I got to watch the bulls like every night. I just, Mike, Michael Jordan, Scotty Pippen, those guys, they were, they were right there. So yeah. Yeah. WGN. That's funny. Yeah, it's a shame. I guess like they're not really carrying that much anymore. And I mean, all sports are kind of weird now. You have to get this subscription to watch the games here and all this stuff. But um, it was so simple back then, you know, everybody just like get it for free. And, you know, all the games might not be on it, but maybe like most of them would be. And and no one even really cared. It was like the cups, you know, it just felt like who really cares anyway, you know. I am much... I, I've gone through spells. Like when I was younger, I was into all the sports just because, you know, when we were growing up, we played outside. And so whatever season it was, we were playing whatever sport it was outside. It wasn't necessarily we were like a part of, the, you know, football teams or the basketball teams or whatever, like the organized sports. But in the mm-hmm. neighborhood, it was just like, oh, it's football's on TV. So then you go play football outside. And we yeah. had a couple of yards behind mine being one of them where we had turned our three backyards into like a baseball diamond. And then like, so we'd play, you know, backyard ball every day. And uh, then as I got older, I kind of was like, I don't know a lot about sports. <laughs> I mean, I, I play them and I, I can enjoy them, but I'm not one of those historians. I found out that what I had been doing was being like a, a music and, and film nerd. And that was my, my historian. That's the stuff I know, but I'm, I'm not much. A, I'm a, I know enough about sports to have a conversation, but I just don't care anymore. I, I don't have the love. I know. I know. It's, it's tough. I divorced myself from baseball for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then I had this like re 
like this homecoming to it. And now I'm kind of on a back to like a, uh, I don't know, like I watch it. I try and keep up about it, but yeah, I'm really not like a sports fan as much as I am like a Cubs fan. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, I don't really give a shit about the other stuff. For some reason for me, it's like, did the Cubs win? Yes. No. Like who's pitching tomorrow? Like I don't keep, I don't do the fantasy thing. Like I can't, can't keep up on the whole freaking league and like who's batting this or who's throwing this. Oh know, gosh. This, Baseball this fantasy. Down. I wouldn't even try. It's crazy. Yeah. It seems so time consuming. Yeah. I think with basketball, I was that way. Like I was such a Jordan fan and then Jordan took his little hiatus to go try baseball and my dad lived in Houston at the time. And so I could go to some Rockets games and I kind of became a Houston fan. And then Jordan came back for a little second. Kind of then I was like, okay, well, I'm kind of a Bulls and Rockets fan, I guess. Don't know what to do. And then like once some of those like Olajuwon and, and Jordan left the game, I was just like, I, I just don't watch basketball and haven't for, you know, 20 years. Same here. Yeah. I watched all the, all those bulls teams growing up. And then as soon as it fell apart, I'd stopped watching basketball. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. it's weird. It is weird. So you had said your, um, your mom and dad had lived in the different spots of Mm -hmm. North Carolina. Mm -hmm. What age did they split apart? When I was a kid, when I was really like a baby. Oh, okay. My mom was, my mom was super young. Okay. That's not why they broke up, but you know, it's just another added. Hi mom. Hey mom. (laughs) (laughs) Hi mom. Um, So your mom though, she was like an actress and Mm -hmm. artist and all kinds of things. What kind of stuff was she doing out there in North Carolina? She was a, an avid member of the, um, community theater mm-hmm. we had in Winston-Salem, the little theater, which is now defunct, I think. Mm. But yeah. And she, so she was also a teacher in the public school system. And so she taught, um, a lot of different things like general studies kind of things, but she also taught theater. She taught acting, but she's also always been big on the design and pro- production side. So she's always like growing up, she was always making costumes, doing makeup, uh, makeup design and like all that stuff. So every part of it, my, my wife's actually a, a hairstylist and a makeup artist now. Yeah. She owns a little studio. Really? Yeah. It's awesome. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, like I always tell people this, but growing up Halloween was the best. Cause I mean, I got like a bespoke costume every year, like full makeup. It was super realistic, like blood. Yeah. And it was awesome. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. My mom owned a ballet school. So I had, I had the choice of all of the tutus that I could ever want. And that was kind of, (laughs) wow. Didn't, I think me and my buddy, Jeremy utilized those once in high school and we went as like punk rock ballerinas, but, um, (laughs) uh, I think that was it. (laughs) Is that, that's like the ballot, like the, the girl in the tutu in the, uh, Nirvana video, right. With the anarchy. Oh yeah. Yeah. She would. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if that inspired us, but probably subconsciously has. Yeah. Yeah. And then your dad. Yeah. My dad is a musician. My dad is a classical. My dad is a, is a, I always say classical first. He's a musician of all 
all kinds. He's a bassist. Growing up, he played a lot of classical. He was he was a he's con- contract orchestra player in the Winston Salem Symphony and Greensboro Symphony and a lot of other state uh, groups. And he was just a gigging bass player, playing jazz gigs, playing in rock bands. Like he did, he did it all. So yeah, I was living with my mom and kind of getting groomed into doing the acting thing and the theater thing. I was actually like really interested in that stuff. Mm -hmm. And then in middle school, I moved in with my dad and um, immediately started getting more into music related things. And, And particularly like listening to a lot of jazz and punk rock and hip hop and stuff. And then, you know, that just became my main focus. Yeah. Mm. And you went from playing the trumpet. Were you playing like trumpet in like school band? Dude, you're so good. Where are you? I mean, how do you, you did so much. You did your homework here. This is really impressive. Thanks. <laughs> um, yeah. I played trumpet. Uh, yeah. It was my first instrument. And I, I was actually like decent, mm-hmm. you know, I got like, you know, got some like all County you know, whatever. Anyway, I moved schools and, and then, you know, I was having some self-confidence kind of issues with my embouchure and like just being in a new school just kind of put me off. And I don't know, one day I just sort of looked over at the base that had always kind of been in the corner growing up. And I asked my dad to like show me something on it. And then from there, I was just like, this is Sometimes the images it shows I can taste you on my lips And smell you in my clothes Cinnamon and sugary And softly spoken lies You never know just how you look Through other people's eyes Okay. You know how there used to be like a game show where you, or maybe it's a radio game show where you, they paid- Name that tune. Yes. You know how bad I would be at that? Yes. I would be the worst player ever. You would be the worst. The very worst. I have no idea what song that is. I didn't expect you to, but. Oh, okay. We'll get there. (laughs) As we do. As one does. Uh, So today we are here to talk about Paul DeFiglia. But first you have to ask me how I am. Oh, uh, okay. Hey, Crystal, how are you doing? Hey, I'm tired. You did that thing again where you told me to get up ridiculously early in the morning and then we're still not recording this until three hours after I've gotten out of bed. But we had to pack up the truck. We did have to pack up the truck. So, hey everybody. We're about to leave on spring break. It's spring break. We're going to PCB, Panama City Beach. No, we are not. No, we're not. No, 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 we are not. We are heading to Santa Fe, New Mexico. If you guys want to join us, we'll be at the, uh, be at Meow Wolf this afternoon, taking my daughter through a series of trippy rooms. Uh, and Crystal will get to experience a little bit of what it's like to be on. Yay, drugs. Hallucinogens. Uh-huh. But I'm so excited to experience what I, it might be like to be on drugs. And I, as a sober person, will get oh, to see. Oh, this will be brand new for you. It'll, 
And I'll also get to see if this place really is being like a trip. Right. Um, so anyway, we're going to Santa Fe for spring break. Uh, so we're going to have weird energy this morning because we <laughs> are trying to record this and walk out the door. Also, we have moved to releasing the episodes on Tuesday, which I am going to post on um, the Instagram this the afternoon, the social media. I'm not, we're not. Oh, a, we're not doing that? No. Oh, no. Just I'm because so doing that. You have a 25 year old business partner does not mean that I'm going to start saying things like social media. She meets. is 27. I will have you know. 20, 27. Sorry. But I'm not going to start saying totes my goats or <laughs> social meds or any of those. So anyway, we are releasing this on Tuesday and will be for the remainder of March. We did last week. I didn't announce it, but. We are trying something out and actually last week it seemed like we got more listeners and it just may be that Kaneen was amazing or the show's growing. It could be all these things, but we're going to try out Tuesday for the remainder of March and into, I think, the first two weeks of April. And then we're going to pivot and decide whether we want to go back to Monday or Tuesday. So that's where we're at, folks. So today we're talking about Paul DeFiglia. Yes. I got... An Avid brother on yeah, the show. Yeah, you did. I know you were so worried about I me ever getting. I was worried about you just because you're so weirdly obsessed. But Paul DeFiglia, who is no longer in the Avids, but was a, uh, he was a bass player for the Avid brothers while Bob was in and out um, mm-hmm. for Hallie's illness um, and some of the treatments. And then after Bob got back, uh, Paul played the keys for or the Ava brothers for a number of years. Yeah. He seemed like such a cool dude. He is. He is a really nice fella. So we're just going to go straight into this. Paul DeFiglia has a studio in Nashville that is called Daylight. And he also has his first studio solo release recording, which is called In Daylight, which was recorded in Daylight. The studio, the studio is called Daylight. He recorded the album in daylight the album is called in daylight i fucked that up and it's still confusing to me you as are I really it. paying some penance here it's okay that you mess things up also at one point in the interview you asked him about like the scene behind you and you said something to the effect of is that daylight and it's so confusing for the listener right like if you aren't familiar with this i immediately thought to myself I don't know, babe, is it weird? Like, is he in a basement or something? Like, is it strange that there would be daylight in his house? Well, see, that's why the listeners get the intro to the the interview oh. before the interview. So they get little tidbits when things like that come up. You guys get a little bit more coddling. I let them know about things that are confusing, usually just, prior to the interview, so that they have that going in. You don't, you just, you go in raw I dog. just listen to it raw. Don't say that. That's, mm, that feels icky to me and it I don't does. know why. What's another name for raw dog then? Oh, don't, just don't, don't say that. Just don't. It's um, all fine. We don't need the imagery. You've she, ruined, like you're going to ruin the word raw for me. And I okay. like that word generally. Okay. You're going in. Raw. That's all. And then you stop. Okay. Or Sentence you're, done. You're going in blindfolded. Mm-hmm. No, I was fine with my, you just had to ruin that for me. So I said I was surprised 
Paul's wife, Mikola, I believe I'm pronouncing that close to right. Um, but I've heard her say her name a bunch of times. Uh-huh. And sometimes I hear that A at the end and sometimes I don't. So it may be something with the Italian, but I don't know. Okay. I'm usually pretty good. But I was surprised Paul's uh, wife, Mikola, was late because she's on a TV show. Paul's wife is the four-time Emmy Award-winning host and executive producer of Bare Feet with Mikola Melosi, which airs in the U.S. on PBS and is on Amazon Prime for worldwide distribution. It's kind of a travel dance show where she travels around the world and each place she studies and dances. She's a professional dancer. She's a musician. And, and she studies a new style of dance in each place and kind of goes... She kind of rabbit holes into styles of dance in the place in the world where it's kind of big or from. No, this sounds amazing. It's incredible. And I want to binge watch it with your daughter. Okay. I'll join you because I've already binge watched like partial episodes just in doing what I do. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Uh, But uh, yeah, it's really good. I'm glad that's on Amazon Prime. Yeah. It's really good. So Anyway, so that's why I said, because I was in film and you had to be early. Yeah. She's late. I also, guess, shout the, out to our nostalgic love for PBS. Yes. We, that we both share. Yeah. We've, we've, PBS has come up quite, I think we've yes. at least three or four different TV <laughs> shows on PBS. Big part of our childhood. <laughs> we have mad, mad love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So she's keeping it into the 21st, 26th. 20, uh, 21st century. I can never keep that straight. <laughs> She's going to keep it in. T- if we get robot legs, we're going into the 23rd century. So I think if we get robot legs, she's one of probably one of the first people we should, you know, give them to if she's going around doing dance education, video, like TV shows. Yeah. Maybe I could become part of her like production crew or something. Ooh. So anyway, <laughs> I believe you asked me on Kyle Tuttle's episode where the Nashville tornado fell on the F scale. Yeah. And I said, I didn't know. As we were discussing Nashville tornadoes again on this episode and have on like 18 episodes, because it seems that every guest that I have on the show is from Nashville or lives in Nashville now. But as I looked up the recent Nashville tornado, I found out that they were scaling tornadoes on an EF scale now. Okay. Not on the F. Yeah, yeah. So now that I moved out of the tornado belt, I don't care anymore. (laughs) So here we go. Okay, let's do this. So you watched Twister growing up. Of course I did. And it was amazing. It came out when I was 16. So you would have been 15. But I actually drove to the movie theater to go see that, which was exciting. Mm, Aren't you showing up? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So me and my friends, we ended up really liking it. So it was one of those multi. Yeah, yeah. We went back when it went to the dollar theater and everything. There was flying cows. That's funny. We've got cows. <laughs> so anyway, Bill Paxton, Helen Hunt, and it ignited the career of the famous Burner Stone out comedic actor, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Really? Yeah. Don't you remember? He played yes. the stoner. Yeah. Like, so he had been in a few movies prior to that. And I had recognized mm-hmm. him when he came out and he had played kind of like a uncomfortable quirky guy. He had been mm-hmm. in this movie leap of faith with Steve Martin and he had been in some other little things, Okay, but, um, in that movie, he uh, he really shined okay. as a little, and then that was when his career started to just keep going. He got Boogie Nights after that, and oh, some yeah, of the yeah. other, you know, okay, all right, cool. went from there. So, and he was not 
known for his highly comedic acting. He ended up being known as a very dramatic actor, but mm. that one where he bloomed and blossomed was um, very funny. Yeah. Anyway, we're moving on from that because that's how I just roll. But in that movie, I learned about the F scale for tornado power. Um, and it is called the Fajita scale or the F scale. The Fajita scale. The Fajita scale, as Crystal likes to call it. So the F scale originally developed by and named after the first initial of the last name of Dr. Tetsuya Theodore Fujita. It was used to estimate tornado wind speeds based on damage left behind by the tornado. The original F scale had limitations such as a lack of damage indicators, no account for construction quality and variability of like basically the way that the stuff was put together and then the wind speed. Uh, resulted in some inconsistencies. So they were braiding things at higher wind speeds and they were, there were, you know, the destruction didn't match up and Mm -hmm. some of this. So now, so we now have the EF scale, which is the enhanced Fujita scale. And that's what the EF is. So now instead of being an F scale, it's rated an EF. So you don't have an F2, you have an EF2. Okay. Basically. So the new EF scale takes into account 28 damage indicators. We call them DIs in the storm chaser world. Oh, really? Yeah. I wanted to be a storm chaser after I saw I Twister. Knew everyone did. I know. Everyone. And, and like me and my if friends, you saw we saw it and it. you didn't, it's because you're wrong. Yeah. And we would like see storms uh-huh. and start driving towards them because yeah. I don't know what we we're going to do when we got there. We were all hoping to be inside of a tornado. I don't know though. Also, if you grew up in the Midwest, like everybody's a storm chaser. Because that's just what you do on a Friday night. Yeah. Like the thing that you're supposed to do is like take cover, go in the crawl, crawl space, do the whole nine yards, like pad the windows and such. But what tends to happen more is you open up the garage door, open up a couple of beers and park your lawn chairs and just watch it. Fuck shit up. Yeah. That was what I was going to say. We had like, we had a porch swing on my house in Georgia and Uh then we had a couple of rocking chairs. Once we were in high school, like on a, Friday night, we were, if there was a big storm outside, we would just like sit on the porch and drink beer and watch the storm. Right. So anyway, there's also included eight DODs, which is part of this enhanced scale, which is the degrees of damage ranging from visible damage to complete destruction. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I know you love lists. Oh, I do. And so oh, give me some of that list. So we're going to do a quick run through of the EF scale class wind speed description. You There's, better make it quick. We're making it quick. The EFO is weak class winds are 65 to 85 miles an hour. Description gale, gale force winds. EF1 is weak 86 to 110 miles an hour, moderate destruction. EF2 strong. 111 to 135, significant destruction. EF3, strong, 136 to 165 miles per hour, severe destruction. EF4, violent, 166 to 200 miles per hour, devastating destruction. EF5, violent, over 200 miles per hour. Destruction is incredible. Does the EF scale also account for the width of the tornado? It doesn't. And so my understanding that the... the some, some of them can be up to a mile almost, I feel like. Yes, but it's really more about the strength of the wind okay. and the destruction. And I always thought that the Vegeta scale 
had something to do with the width of the storm as yeah. well. That's weird that we both had that. I wonder if that's a up. twister thing. Could have been a twister thing. Yeah. And it could be part of the inconsistency of the Fujita scale, which is now why it's not part of the F scale. Okay. That'll have to be for a later fact check. So Nashville tornado, where did that rate? Nashville tornado, which Paul and Nicholas slept through, was part of a series of tornadoes that took place in Tennessee, Mississippi, Kentucky, and on the night of March 2nd, ending on March 3rd, and the tornadoes ranged from EF0 to EF4. The one that caused all the damage directly around Nashville was a high-end EF3. Wow. There was one other EF4 mm-hmm. in that uh, was, I think it was just to the east of, of that Nashville one where it was actually more destruction. wasn't quite as long. This EF3 was highly destructive and it ran. It was, it was a pretty long one. Gotcha. There was another one in Nashville area around 1998 that was on a slightly different path, but pretty similar mm-hmm. in destruction. That was Now, when you say long... The storm went for an incredibly long time. The tornado lasted or for a long. Or the path was yep. like mm-hmm. the like path calculated was long. in miles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. The path was long. Did you uh, look up how long the path was? I didn't, but I've looked. I've watched a drone video of it, and it's pretty oh. crazy. Okay. So moving on from Nashville tornadoes, so it ended up being a high end up EF three. Okay. Long story short. <laughs> Very long story. Still long. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing short about it. Nothing. Nashville bomber. So, you know, I, I tried to do some more research onto this Nashville bomber. We had discussed this also. I think it was the Kyle Tuttle yeah. um, wrap up. But he had this message playing in. He parked in front right. of the AT&T building yes. and it started playing this message. People say that it sounded like gunshots before the message started playing. Uh-huh. Don't know what that, if that's a part of the recorded message that was like to like get people's attention or what, but so people claim hearing gunshots. Had he shot himself in the. I don't know. I don't think so. Oh, I think he, I think he let it, let it just happen. I I mean, there's a lot of choices there that I would not have made. There is. That is one of them. We're going to get a little bit there. But okay. so it started playing this message and she recalled it saying, evacuate now. This vehicle has a bomb and will explode. Evacuate now. So I did want to do a little house cleaning because I'd reported that three people had been hospitalized mm-hmm. uh, after the bombing. Right. And Kyle had said, fortunately, no one was hurt. Kyle was correct. Oh, okay. There had nobody been, there had been nobody hospitalized as a result of the bombing. So I must have read a report that later was corrected okay. or clarified. And one person that they had said was hospitalized was a cancer patient without access to medication. They eventually checked themselves out. Another one was someone with an unspecified illness. And the third was a person that was found unconscious. Uh-huh. I guess in the vicinity of where the bombing was, but uh, officials later determined that it had nothing to do with the blast. Interesting. So all three of those people that were hospitalized post bombing were not as a result of the bomb. 
And so the other thing I had talked about was David Ferrier on the Armchair and Dangerous, where it had said something about it being AT&T building and yeah. I'd kind of gone into some of that and I couldn't find anything before, but I found a newer article. New York Times is a great article on this if you guys want to go out and look at it, but it was definitely an AT&T building and it was a major one at that. So that's why when it blew up, mm-hmm. it caused delayed flights, caused interrupted cell service to multiple states. Oh, wow. Like it, it did some damage, damage as far as AT&T was concerned. So if he was trying to cause some issues with AT&T, he, he actually succeeded in that portion. Still not saying his name because I don't want to give him any, right. any notoriety. So there is a rumor and it sounds like a bit more than a rumor. It's been, uh, substantiated by multiple people, but it, the, what is in this, he basically, he sent out some kind of either manifesto or thing that was postmarked a couple of days before the bombing to some multiple people that he knew explaining why he had done it or, or some theories behind what, what he was thought he was accomplishing here. And it sounded like it was very David Icke inspired. Ew. Yep. Lizard people had taken over the world. Uh, that sounds, that's very Q adjacent. Very Q adjacent. Yeah. And he, Gross. and he actually, the, uh, police had gotten a call from his girlfriend a year prior saying he's building bombs in this RV. Holy buckets. And they went and he had a lawyer that said, we do not give you access. And they didn't have other than her verbal account didn't have enough. The police sent it on to the FBI. Oh, that makes me mad. Yeah. Not wasn't, wasn't fortunately, like we said, nobody except him was hurt. He just had a suicide and I didn't know him well. So I don't really, you know, I'm sorry for his family and those people. But other than that, you know, he didn't hurt anybody else. He just, he caused a lot of fucking destruction yeah. though, and a lot of money. And it's really scary. Right. At a time where like in this country, we don't need that shit right now. Christmas day. Yeah. We don't need that shit. We don't um, need that negativity. We don't need that destruction. We don't need Christmas ruined. Also, if you find yourself sitting around and writing a manifesto, do me a favor, put the pen down, sit on it for a second and call your fucking therapist. Oh, well he was working on the bombs for a year. I'm just saying, if you find yourself <laughs> writing a manifesto, shit has gone off the rails Call your therapist. Okay. I will, I will. You could hear it in my voice. I was getting real mad right there. Yeah. But anyway, so that was the, that was the bombing. That was, that's where we're at right now. I'm sure we're going to find out more, but that was the Nashville, that was the Nashville bomber scenario. This all came up because Paul and I were in agreement that Mm. suicide bomber was the appropriate term. Yeah. I think I did go back to some of the earlier articles and I, I'm not going to say any names because I don't want to deal with it. But there was a couple of major news outlets, some left and some right, that had kind of steered around using suicide bombers. Right. It looks like from even from the last time when I did this, I don't know, however many weeks or months ago that was, that eventually a lot of the places got there to using the suicide bomber. Okay. And, but the, the people's reasoning when they say, oh, he wasn't a suicide bomber is there's so much bullshit. Like the one that seems to be consistent is 
that there's a very, you know, particular description of a suicide bomber. Not white? Nope. Is it that, wasn't. No, no, <laughs> just no. Just go ahead and say okay. it then. Well, the, there's probably <laughs> definitely some racist stuff, but that uh, he didn't kill anybody other than himself. And I will what? tell you that I have watched. <laughs> that seems like it misses the definition. Have, just you, have you ever watched the suicide bomber on a, uh, he's on a, what's the thing that Danny likes to do around the neighborhood we were on yesterday? Hoverboard. I have not. Oh, no. Okay. So there's a, there's a video of a suicide bomber on a, on a hoverboard. hoverboard. He hits a rock. Oh dear. It's a quick death. Oh God. There is a video out there about this. Oh yeah. I watched it. It was years ago that I saw it. Oh no, no, no. Yeah. Anyway, Oof. he's on a hoverboard. He trips. He goes off. The bomb goes off. There was no question that he was a suicide bomber that blew himself up. He did not kill anybody else. There wasn't like a thing of like man intended for suicide. It was nothing. There was no, it, he was a suicide bomber. Yeah. So anyway. Okay. This guy was a suicide bomber as well. Yeah. And Paul and I completely agreed on that. So Paul DeFiglia has released his first solo studio album and it is in a daylight. In Daylight, which is a fantastic album of covers. And I'm, I'm not just blowing smoke. I really love this album. I liked it too. Yeah, yeah. It's, I didn't realize this until I was doing research for the episode, but Paul used to do a mixtape blog, or he may actually still do it, but he has these like multi-hour mixtapes where he kind of, all, it's almost like a DJ, like, you know, he, you know, runs these different songs back to back. But uh, you know me, I am kind of, a mixtape oh, yeah. aficionado, but yeah. I think Paul actually takes it to a different level. So I think it was Sounds perfect like it. for him to kind of do a, uh, a cover album. So we talk about old bands doing more covers and cover albums back in the day. And Paul brings up Booker T and the MGs that put out an album covering all Beatles songs. Uh, that was an instrumental album called Macklemore Avenue. And it has them walking across the street like the oh, yeah. yeah the Beatles. Uh-huh. So that was the Booker T's album. I just if anybody wanted to go listen to that, it's called Macklemore Avenue. It's really good. It's got it's really cool covers. And then Paul covered two Beck tracks, and there I said that there was a documentary, like a '90s rock documentary, that had an interview with the lead singer of Butthole Surfers, Gibby Haynes, and. Butthole Surfers were like this kind of unusual band because they came from like the 80s and crossed over into the 90s into that alt rock scene and like grunge and then trip hop and like all the different things that kind of Beck did. And they were, but they had started out like playing with these old school punk bands in the 80s and they have some kind of albums that are kind of more old school punk. So they kind of, Butthole Surfers ended up being kind of this kind of, also really interesting band that crossed a lot of genres and actually kind of influenced some different folks over the years that you don't hear about as much, but they had one big radio hit that doesn't sound much like the rest of their music pepper. And that was what I was singing to you. Okay. At the beginning of this episode. All right. So it came back around. Yeah. Yeah. That was full circle. There we are. Gibby Haynes singing pepper. That was Gibby. So I did not find the documentary where Gibby said that he hoped that, uh, that Beck was going to be the new punk. 
I don't know if that was like an independent document. I don't know. Cause I can go from like mainstream to indie. So I, I was unable to find that, but if I find it on later, I'll, I'll let you guys know. So on this cover album, Paul covers two Beck songs. Mm-hmm. And when I was going through and I was reading, you know, the, the credits of some of the songs, I saw him that he lists Beck as Beck Hansen. And I, you know, usually you just see Beck as Beck. Right. And I, I realized that I did not know Beck's last name. And then I felt shame on me. And I told him that sometimes I feel bad about being a music nerd because I'm not that good of a music nerd. And this was one of those times. But it was also strange to see, think about the fact that Beck is 50 because he looks so young. And he was, you know, we were at middle school when he was starting to get right, some notoriety. Right. And he's, I'm 41 now. And then... So I thought it was funny, too, because, you know, like the people of our generation just seem, I don't know if it's diet and exercise. I don't know if it's the hormones and the food. We're just really good looking. But for the age group, I feel <laughs> like we have a leg up over the 80s and 90s, 40 and 50. Mm, maybe not. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe I'm just older now and I'm like, oh. We people, look just <laughs> great. We look great <laughs> with our gray hair and our wrinkles that I am. Very, trying very hard to combat. But just here in the last couple of days, I was helping Danny sign up for a uh, profile and to keep away creepers, she wanted to use my info. Yes. And so she used my age and she goes, dad, you're 41, right? And I was thinking to myself and I was just like, she is not making fun of me. No. She is not wrong. Mm-mm. You are all 41, of those years. 41 just sounds, yes. sounds old to me. So, I did decide recently, though, that I am not going to turn 41. I'm just going to stay 40. I'm really glad because... I'm here. I am got here, and I'm happy here, and that's where I'm staying. I'm kind of glad because every time I turned a new age, you became that age instantly, even though you're six months younger than me. <laughs> every time. And sometimes when we were, like, in 37, you would say, yeah, you know, I'm 40 now. And I'm just like, No. I'm not, I'm 37, I'm 38. You are not 40. Like, I really you, wanted to get here. Now that I'm wanted, here, I'm happy. Yes, yes. Been pushing it for years. Uh, so Beck was born Beck David Campbell, and it was B-E-K. But yeah. him and his brother both changed their names to Hanson when Beck was growing up to use their mother's maiden name. His dad was a composer and sounds like, maybe a, you know, session musician and, and some different things. Um, pretty accomplished musician, it seems like. But Beck said his dad, when he was young, didn't talk about what he did. And so he didn't really know until he was like a teenager and saw his dad's name on the back of this album and that it was just like a pretty major deal. And then he was like, oh, and kind of like realized that his dad was pretty successful. So I don't know how close their relationship was when he was younger. Okay. But it must have come around somewhat since because on some of the orchestral composures, his, from what I could see, his dad was at least on two albums of his. Oh, okay. So that's kind of interesting. But he took his mom's name. Mm -hmm. That's the Beck Hansen. He was born Beck, uh, Beck Campbell. And he also, at that time, he wanted people to, he hoped that people would pronounce his name more properly. So he added the C legally at that time as well. So it became B-E-C-K and not B-E-K, which it originally was. And it said it did not help at all. People just screwed it up all the time. Digital versus analog. So 
I found a a write-up from, I think it's a recording school or some kind of recording mentor program. I'm not really sure. It's called Recording Connection. I am ripping this straight off, but it basically said what I wanted to say as far as digital versus analog, just to clarify. So thanks, Recording Connection, whoever you are, and here we go. Okay, let's bring this idea into audio, music, and studio. Sounds occur naturally in analog. That is to say, sounds occur in a continuous set of waves that we hear with the human ear. Think of it as a wavy line with an infinite number of points along it. When we capture that sound in a way that represents all the possible frequencies recording in analog, when we use computers to translate the sound into a series of numbers that approximate what we're hearing, we're recording in digital. Thus, a purely analog recording would be something that was recorded on tape and produced using manual equipment to mix, master, and press into a vinyl LP. A purely digital recording would be recorded on a computer program such as Pro Tools, mixed, mastered, and produced digitally, and eventually burned onto a CD or an MP3 or audio file. The most ironic aspect of the debate about digital versus analog recording is that nowadays a lot of music is a combination of the two. For example, you might record a song onto analog tape, but mix and master it digitally, or release it on the internet as an MP3. So what's the difference in quality between analog and digital? The idea between digital recording is that our ears and brains technically can't determine the spaces between the digital values just like our brains interpret films as a continuous motion. However, to many people, analog sound tends to be warmer, has more texture, and is thought to capture a truer representation of the actual sound. Digital is felt to be somewhat cold, technical, and perhaps lacking in analog's nuance. However, digital is much cheaper. Recording an album with analog technology can require a whole studio full of equipment, but with digital recording technology, it's possible to record a whole album in a bedroom on a laptop. Oh, Billie Eilish documentary. Yeah. In where areas analog technology can wear out or be damaged, digital media can last for an indefinite length of time. So Paul has both set up in his. Mm-hmm. And what he was saying, even going further on the mixing and mashing of analog and digital is to record like certain parts of the song on analog, certain parts on digital. And like with Paul's album, he's got a mix and mash and then he's he's got on Bandcamp where you can go out and purchase his CD or he actually just came out with uh, vinyl. And it looks really pretty. And Cracker Farm did the photography and I'm failing on the artist, but it looks really cool. So I I actually have thought about, I've been perusing buying a record player and getting (laughs) back into my record collection. I think you're probably going to need one. Because all these people have all this great fun. It's so pretty. I've even got like Avid Guild 7 inches that they send out Mm -hmm. for the Avid Guild. I've got like multiple of those and I have nothing to play it on. Mantle and Orange usually does theirs on record too, right? All Everybody does now. Yeah. Yeah, and they're all so pretty and different artwork and I love that stuff. I had such a good record collection before it died in the flood when my mom yeah, had yeah. her basement. Yeah. So I had a great record collection for a kid and I lost it in a flood in Georgia because our basement flooded in when I had left for college. That's where my record collection had gone. So anyway, I compared analog to HD versus cellulose film, which I still hold is pretty accurate. I said I had worked as a DP. That is short for director of photography also called cinematographers, cinematography, 
In case you're wondering, they are one and the same. There's nothing different between a director of photography, a DP, cinematographer. So usually in the credits, you'll see it written as director of photographer as the job title. Mm -hmm. And then as cinematography by, you know, Emanuela Lubezki or whatever. So photography means writing with light. So photo stands for light and graphy for writing. Cinematography means writing with movement. So that's the, that's the difference between photography and direct, you know, for cinematography. So I just wanted to say that because that was my, that's my roots. So I know that the, where we're here ending here on this wrap up does not exactly end where the episode ends, but it's my daughter's spring break and we need to hit the road to Santa Fe. So we'll finish up next week. And I hope you guys in part two, in part two of Paul DeFiglia. First time we're doing this. Yeah. I'm yeah, excited about it. I am too. And I think we should do more two-parters. Yeah. And I hope you guys liked the integration with the music in this episode from Paul's album. And then go out and buy Paul's album if you haven't already done so. And then listen to it before next week. And then maybe you have a little bit more connection. And then just go out and listen to all the Avid Brothers albums and all the Langhorn Slim albums. And then they can find that music on your Spotify playlist for Life from Banjo, which you'll find on the Marcus Gillis Spotify page. Yes. And you can also go to my Instagram now or Facebook and you go into the bio and I have a link directly to my mixtape, which I called it a mixtape prior to recording or doing any of this stuff. I mean, calling something a mixtape is not exactly original. It's not, but I'm just saying like we have a love for mixtapes. His blog was called something mixtape. I can't remember. I'll put it in next week's fact check. Wrap up. I will put the you name. You sound of like it. the micro machine man right now. I probably do, but I love you. I love you. And I love everybody that's listening. And we will be back with the second half, the second half, half. the second half of Mr. Paul DeFiglia next week. And next week's episode takes an unexpected turn for me at the end. So I hope you join us to finish up and find out where that goes. Yay. And just remember kid. We're all in this together.